church. Everyone else, um, if you don't mind, please take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, no worries. We will have it on the screen for you as well. And if you do not own a Bible, uh, please make sure to find. There are blue paperback Bibles in the pews. Find one of those. Take that as our free gift to you. You can take that home, read that, use that, check everything that I say, that Robert says, that Aaron says, uh, by the word of God. And I think you will be uh, blessed, encouraged, and we as your pastors will be blessed and encouraged uh, and held to account, which is good for us as well. Acts chapter 2, we will be in verse 43 through 47 today. We will be building a little bit today on the same themes, the same topic that we talked about last week, looking at the early church, this brand new church in its infancy as it has begun here in Acts. This is directly after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and we will be looking today at verses 43 through 47 as we continue our study of God's Word. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, 43 through 47. And all came upon every soul, and many signs, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today as we've begun, as we have opened up your word. Lord, I pray that we would keep your word, the very word of God, the scriptures we have primary in all that we do, all that we do here in this place and in our lives. Lord, I pray that the word of God would reign supreme. And so, Lord, today as I preach. I pray that you would give me the words to say and that, Lord, I might be faithful to your word here in Acts chapter 2. Lord, I pray today that this might be useful to us. Lord, that we might be able to take this and not just have moral teaching to make us um, better people in the world, but Lord, we might see the fruit of the gospel here in Acts chapter 2, and that might encourage us, grow us, strengthen us by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin today with the story of a man by the name of Charles Thomas Studd, or he's also known commonly as C.T. Studd. It's a name you might not be very familiar with because I was not very familiar with this name until just recently, but it's a name I think we ought to familiar ourselves with because uh, the story of C.T. Studd is an amazing story. C.T. Studd was a man who was born into a wealthy family. His father, Edward Studd, was, was very wealthy. And uh, C.T., as a, a young man, was brought to faith in Jesus Christ through a sermon preached by D.L. Moody. He was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and like I said, he was the son of a very wealthy man who had uh, the equivalent today of millions and millions of dollars. C.T. Studd was also a very well-known, very famous, very uh, renowned cricket player. In fact, he was world famous. He uh, 
was well known in England for his cricket skills. He played for Cambridge and uh, two years in a row just dominated the, the cricket scene uh, around the world. He was very well known for his cricket skills. He was wealthy, but as C.T. was in college, he began to realize as he was living this life of fame and of fortune and, and certainly everything was going well and going right for him in his life by the world's standards, he began to realize as he was a Christian, he had begun to stagnate, that he had been drawn in by the love of the world and his heart had become hardened to the things of God. He realized that throughout his conversations, the Lord and, and the things of God and the gospel and Jesus Christ were absent from his daily life and conversation. And upon this realization, he was driven once again to go and listen to D.L. Moody preach. And after listening to Dr. Moody preach a sermon on missions and evangelism, it was then that C.T. Studd realized the call that the Lord had put on his life, realizing the need that was out there in the world. And uh, from that day forward, Stud dedicated his life to the work of missions. He first partnered with, uh, with Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission and spent years ministering in China where he met his wife and, and began to raise their four children there in China. And then after returning to the United States because of pure exhaustion, uh, and taking some time to rest and recover. It was not long after that that the Lord call, called him to serve in Africa, where he would spend the remainder of his life ministering to unreached people groups there in Africa and ultimately die there in Ibambi, Africa. Now, this is not a uh, particularly a sermon on missions today, and so you might be wondering why I've brought up C.T. Studd. And the reason I bring up C.T. Studd is because, as I mentioned he was the son of a very wealthy man. And when his father, Edward, died, C.T., along with his brothers, inherited a great fortune, a great vast amount of wealth. That even as it was divided among he and his brothers, he inherited what was the equivalent today of millions and millions of dollars from his father when he died. But the amazing thing about C.T. Studd and what is so just ground-shaking about him and his life was not only did he give up to go into the mission field, uh, his fame as a cricket player, his, uh, his comfort here in the United States, but he took every single pound that was his that he inherited from his father, except for one small portion, took every single bit of it and gave it away. Gave it to D.L. Moody to begin the uh, Moody Bible Institute. He gave it to uh, George Mueller to fund his orphanages, to care for orphans, to care for children, to care for those in need, along with uh, several other people and organizations, the Salvation Army, Hudson Taylor, all of these different groups. He, he just gave away this, this great inheritance, millions and millions of, of dollars worth today, given away for the sake of the lost, for the sake of those in need, for the sake of the orphans and the widows and I said he kept just a small portion for himself. Uh, he met a woman on the mission field um, at, as he was beginning his missionary work in China. And he gave to his wife this marriage gift of this one lump sum that he had saved. And uh, his wife, being as committed to the ministry that they had been called to as he was, took all that money and gave it away as, as quickly as he did. Just an amazing story of generosity and of 
concern not for oneself but for the needs of those around him. If you ask me, C.T. Studd is a man who genuinely lives up to his name. This guy was a stud. And I don't just mean on the cricket field. I mean as a man of God, a man committed to God's faithfulness and care for him to the point that he was willing to give away all of his wealth for the sake of Christ. If there was ever a man that lived up to his name, it was this guy. But what we see from C.T. Studd is just an extension, a continuation of what we see from the book of Acts here in chapter 2. A life of generosity, of disconcern for ourselves and our needs for the sake of caring for our brothers and sisters. What is it that would drive a person to live a life of this kind of radical generosity? The kind of generosity that we see here in Acts chapter 2, where they had all things in common. They were selling their belongings, selling their possessions, and as every person had need, their need was met. What is it that causes a group of people, an individual, to live a life of radical generosity like the Christians here or like C.T. Studd? I believe that the most logical, most clear answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that drives, that motivates, that empowers this kind of radical generosity that we see here in Acts chapter 2. So that as we read this story of the early church, of the believers of this baby church and their radical generosity, we ought not to read it and simply see moral teachings of generosity, though it is, it is heavy in this text but we ought to look just a little bit deeper to see what is it that motivates, what is it that drives this kind of generosity, that drives this kind of selfless living out of concern for others over ourselves. I would argue that Christians who've been transformed by the gospel will reflect such a transformed life by living joy-filled and generous lives among their brothers and sisters in Christ. I want us to look at the generosity of the believers here in Acts chapter 2 and consider three points that I have laid out for us. The first point for us today is, as we look at their kind of generosity, see that they had generosity for the sake of unity. Generosity for the sake of unity. Verse 44 of our text today says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. We see from this passage, as we see throughout the book of Acts, an intense, a great deal of unity, a great sense of unity. Not only do we see it in the early church in Acts, but all throughout the New Testament of kind of unity and togetherness and oneness that is found in the early church that the Bible calls us to, that the Bible calls us as believers to. You know, we say this over and over again here at Redeemer, but there is no such thing as a Christian who has been called to live their Christian life alone. Each and every Christian has been called, has been saved, and has been united together with brothers and sisters in Christ to live with one another, to live unified with one another. As this church was, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Throughout the New Testament, the church is described as a body, in terms even of a physical body, a physical body that is united together as different parts, but serving one body. And when there's a need in a certain part of the body, it is up to the other parts of the body to help make it right. And so this is true with the church as well. 
For the sake of unity, when we as the church see needs in those around us, we ought to, for the sake of unity and because of our unity, be quick to make sacrifices to fill those needs, to be quick to live generously for the sake of that brother or sister in Christ. It's much like the physical body. When there are needs that the physical body has, it might take sacrifice by the part of the rest of the body to meet those needs. I think about myself. During cold seasons like we are in right now, as the weather's cold, I deal with severe dry skin. I don't know if anyone else deals with dry skin, but it is frustrating, right? And I know, I know that as my skin gets dry and gets wore out, there is something that will help, right? It's lotion. It's the Neutrogena Norwegian Blend hand cream put on every night, and my hands will stay comfortable. They won't crack open. They won't bleed, right? But so often, I just kind of let it go. I forget about it. I feel the pain throughout the day. Yeah, this really stinks. Well, that hand sanitizer really didn't feel very good. But then I get home that night, and I say, ah, don't worry about it. I'm ready for bed. I'm too tired. I'll go ahead. The bottom line is, unless I am willing to take action for this part of my body, take the the time that's needed in order to go and get the lotion and rub it in, be able to deal with the sacrifice of not being able to turn doorknobs for a few hours because my hands are all slimy, right? For the sake of my hands, for the sake of the need that is there, it is a sort of sacrifice that I need to make, time commitment, an effort that needs to go in. When we as the body of Christ see needs in the congregation around us, see needs uh, in our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is up to us to make the sacrifice necessary in order to meet those needs because we are one body. And if we see needs, if we see pain, if we see hurting in the congregation around us and we don't care, then there's something wrong with the body, right? There's a disconnect between us and the rest of the body that we're not feeling that hurt, we're not feeling that pain, we're not feeling that need as we ought. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, this passage on humility, as Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says this, speaking to them, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This kind of selflessness of concern for others and their needs over and above our own is the lifeblood of Christian unity. Without it, Christian unity cannot exist. If we come together as a body, as a people, and our concerns are for ourselves and ourselves only, then Christian unity is defunct. It's gone. It will not thrive. It will not be possible. It is only when we come together and say, what is it that my brothers or sisters Need. It is only then that we can live together as God has called us to, as Christ has saved us to. And we do so, as Paul says in, in uh, Philippians, we are to have this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. This is Christ's mind. This is Christ's heart for us, and so it ought to be our heart for one another. Indeed, when you read Christ's prayer in John 17, this high priestly prayer, we call it, What is his concern for the disciples and for the church? Their unity, that they would be one as he and the Father are one. 
A church full of misers, full of hoarders, is a church that will soon fall. A church cannot stand if each person comes together concerned for their own interests. Certainly it cannot stand and still be the true church as Christ has appointed it. It's important to notice that before these believers here, before they can give to the needs of each, they first of all had to know what those needs were. How is it that these believers were able to know and see and feel what the needs of the congregation were? It was because of their unity. It was because they were together. It was because they were invested in one another's lives. It was because they were day by day attending the table, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. It was this togetherness, this fellowship that we talked about last week that is the reason why they were so attuned to one another's needs. That when need popped up, they knew it. Mind you, this is all before the age of the internet and smartphones, even email. And yet they knew one another's needs. They were invested in one another's lives because they were living their lives together. That's how we are called to live our lives as believers. Even before we can begin to live this kind of radical, generous, radical generosity, a life of radical generosity, we have to be united with one another. We have to be living our lives connected to one another so that we might know when need pops up. If we're simply leaving it up to the people around us to come and tell us every time they have a need, things are probably not going to work out the way they ought. Needs are not going to be met. Things are going to be swept under the rug. We need to be living our lives in connection with one another, in unity with one another, so that we can live our lives generously with one another. A part of the unity of the body and a natural outcropping of it is a sacrificial generosity. Point number two, generosity from a heart of love. We ought to give generously, sacrificially of all that we have. Now, we, we talk every week about giving of our tithes and of our offerings, but the giving that we ought to give to one another is more than just pulling our, out our wallet and giving of the extra money that we happen to have. It is a giving of our lives, committing to one another as Christ has committed himself to the church, loving one another in this way, not out of compulsion or coercion. Rather, it ought to be out of a love and care for one another. This is what ought to drive us to this kind of generosity is our love and our concern for one another. But then the question we ought to have is, what is driving our love and our concern for one another? If we leave our love and our care and our, our concern for one another simply up to how we feel about that person, well, there still might be people that don't get our generosity, that don't get our care, that don't get our affection. Because guess what? There are some people that might be in the church with us, members with us, that we frankly don't feel that fond of, that maybe annoy us or bother us, that maybe have different political views than us, or maybe do things differently than us, raise their kids differently than us, right? There's all kinds of reasons, a whole host of reasons why there could be disunity and disliking and disfellowship between us as human beings. Our love and our concern for one another is motivated by and rooted in something deeper than just how we feel about one another. It's rooted in how Christ feels about his church and his people. 
our love for one another ought to be motivated by our love for Christ. Because if we truly love Christ, we will love his church. We will love his bride. And we will do so radically, generously, in a way that reflects how he loves the church. The bond that develops in this group of believers here in Acts chapter 2, it develops so quickly and with such strength and veracity, so much so that it really doesn't make sense, nor will it last if it is founded on anything earthly. This kind of radical generosity, this kind of love and care for one another and investment in one another in every avenue is only going to be sustained, is only going to last if it is rooted in something else. Their love for each other here in Acts 2 is rooted in and stems from their love of Christ. So that when they think about giving to the needs of those in their midst, what they recognize as we ought to recognize also is that they are demonstrating their love for God in doing so. This is how we ought to view our love and our giving to those around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to ask ourselves, how does the Lord love these people? And then that ought to be our goal to reflect. I want to love his people the way he loves his people. A way that is sacrificial, that is willing to risk and put all on the line for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the church. Do we think in this way? When you think about the needs of those in the church, what is, where does your mind go? I know what the temptation is. The temptation is sometimes to say, well, I know that person and I know that they're not really that good with their money. And so I don't really know that I should be helping them out financially in this way. I know that person and I know that they get food stamps. So I don't really feel like it's my responsibility to help them in this way. Or it might be simpler than that, that person annoys me, right? That's not the way we ought to think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I shouldn't have to say that, but we all know that we do that, right? Our response ought to be, whose child is this? This is a child of God. The very song we sang this morning, that we have been adopted into the household, into the family of God. How dare we treat a child of God in this way with such disdain and with such a looking down upon. Now, I'm not saying that we forsake wisdom. Maybe some people need to be counseled on how to handle their money well. Certainly, that might be the case. But none of that is an excuse or gives us an exemption to let our brother or sister in Christ suffer or be in need or in want. Certainly, the early church did not, and neither should we. In Matthew chapter 25, 37 through 40, we see this this instance where Jesus, as he is speaking, is speaking of the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says to them, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Because this is what he said, as often as you have, or he says, you saw me when I was hungry and you fed me. You saw me when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And the response is, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see, a strange, see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And this is Jesus' response. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Caring for those in our midst who are in need is, is obedience to Christ. It is obedience to him, care for his people, for his body. Too often the reason generosity is so foreign to us and is difficult to us is because Christ is absent from the equation that we run in our hearts. When we look at the needs around us, too often we look at those needs, consider those needs while Christ is outside of the equation. In his book, When the Church Was a Family, Joseph Hellerman rightly points out that one of the problems that we have in our church today that has risen up in our modern culture is due to the fact that we are at a place where salvation is so often, so regularly viewed solely with regards to us as an individual. We've probably heard this term, the personal relationship with Jesus. And let me say, first of all, a personal relationship with Jesus is not something that you're going to find in Scripture. Certainly, it's not a phrase you're going to find. And to be perfectly frank with you, by and large, what you see in Scripture is not personal relationships with Jesus, but a relationship of the church and Jesus and us to the church. Now, we know, and I'm not denying the fact that we are all saved personally, individually. Our connection to the church does not save us. The Lord does not save us in groups, but he saves us individually. But that does not mean that we remain solely individual, nor that our salvation is centrally to be viewed as an individual, miraculous thing. Hellerman says that just as we are justified with respect to God and salvation, the Bible shows us that we are also familyfied with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that this familyfication, as it were, is no less a potential reality than our justification. That when we are saved by God, the reality of the fact that we are justified before God is a true reality. But just as true is the reality that we are united together with brothers and sisters. We are united together as the family of God. Which is why family language in the church is so important and so valuable because it is what we have been called to and bought to. So that just as we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we are also to reckon ourselves united as a true family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that ought to dictate and manage how we relate to one another. That we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family. No more could we see our biological brother or sister or mother or father in desperate need and neglect their needs than we ought to be able to see our brothers and sisters in Christ in need and neglect their needs. And this is a heavy calling that we are called to, certainly. But it is far better than the alternative because in the same way that we have been called to love one another, care for one another, give generously to one another as a family, we are united into that same family. We have the same love and care and support of a family that is given to each and every one that we are called to care for as well. I think there is, there is a way that people sometimes view salvation. I'm going to risk a, uh, an analogy here, and they're always risky. I'm going to risk it here. I think we sometimes view salvation kind of in the sense of God rescuing people, say, from sea. He pulls a, a person out of the sea, 
and then puts a boat underneath him, sets him in a little rowboat. This is all yours. This is your rowboat. You are now saved. Here you are in salvation. Now go. Go forward on your journey. Go make your way home. And that then there's all these people in their own rowboats of salvation making their way home, separated from another, one another. We might see each other. We might wave to one another from our rowboat to their rowboat. But by and large, our salvation is something that we are, are now p- taking part in, working in in our sanctification, doing it in our own rowboat. But in reality, when God saves people, he plucks them out of danger, plucks them out of a, a certain death and places them together on one ship, on one boat, to work together towards sanctification, to care for one another and love one another and look after one another. And he has given us all various gifts in order to serve one another better, in order to to pursue love and generosity better. So that this is actually what salvation looks like. Not being saved and placed in our own little salvation rowboat, but being saved to a people. Being saved and then given a place to be and belong and a place to care for people and to be cared for by people. And as necessary it is for all these people on this ship to be willing to give sacrificially, it is just as necessary for us as believers, as the church, to live in the same way sacrificially, willing to give all for the sake of Christ. We give out of the love that we have for one another and for Christ. Third, generosity as a product of the gospel. Verses 46 through 47 in our passage says, as we've already read, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Here we see in this uh, instance of the church here as they are living these lives of generosity, we see what it results in, what it ends in, is it ends and results in is pouring out of worship to God. A part of the acknowledgement of the kind of generosity on display here in Acts is a sense of trust in God. It's a trust in God that drives them to be willing to sell all of their possessions, to give their money away to all who have need. Because doing this kind of thing is a risky thing. To sell your possessions, to give away your money is a risk. Because you're hoping things hold up. You're hoping you won't need that money later. I mean, that's part of why we have investments, right? Part of why we have possessions. It gives us a sense of security about the future. We're set because the size of our bank account or because the the investments that we've made or because of the possessions that we have. And so to see these people worshiping God in this way, in such a way that they are willing to sacrifice their possessions, their wealth, their security is a demonstration of the trust that they have in God. Why are they able to trust God in this way? To trust God in such a way that they can give up their possessions, give up their things, their wealth, their security? Upon what is this trust built? Well, I can tell you it's not built solely on the confidence that they have in one another. It's not built solely on emotions that they might feel for one another. It is built on God's continued faithfulness and promises to his people. 
we sing the song Jude Doxology. In fact, we heard a little bit of the doxology of Jude in our uh, prayer uh, for our offering today. But the song we sing Jude, Jude Doxology is a reminder of God's faithfulness. Remember how he brought you out of Egypt. Remember how he saved you as his people. Remember you were slaves and now are free. Remember these things that God has done for you. Remember the faithfulness of God. Recall the promises of God and trust in him. Even if that means as the church in Hebrews suffered the plundering of their goods. That even through all of that, we can trust God. We can trust his promises. We can trust his faithfulness. And if you've been a Christian for very long at all, you know you can look back at God's faithfulness so far and you can trust in that. If God has saved you from the destruction that you had coming and he's breathed life into your soul and transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light and all of this at the expense of his own son, why on earth would you not trust God with your stuff? Would you not trust God with your security here on this earth? He has already demonstrated his goodness and his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness to you in Christ Jesus. Generosity for the early church as it ought to be for us today is an outpouring of the gospel impact on their lives and a part of their worship, which is why this is what it results in. It results, as we see in their worship and their praise. In verse 46, it says that they were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Notice how they received their food. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They received their food thanking God, praising God. That even the food that they ate together, they recognized was a grace of God, was a gift from him, and therefore he deserved the glory and the honor and the praise. And we see the, the result of this kind of living. Praise to God. And as we see that they had favor with all people. This kind of radical living of generosity is a seriously profound apologetic to the world around us. That the world around us, when they see how we live with one another, what we are willing to give for our brothers and sisters in Christ ought to cause them to stop and wonder and pause and say, man, oh man, why would someone live that way? The same way we give pause and say, wow, when we read the story, stories of guys like C.T. Studd, who are willing to give up everything for the sake of his brothers and sisters in need. There's a song that we used to sing at First Southern, in the church that I grew up at as a believer, uh, called Freely, Freely. And the song is a reminder of why it is that we are to give, why it is that we are to show mercy and grace to those around us, why it is that we are to declare the gospel to those around us, because freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give. And this is true for every aspect of all the good things that we have in Christ Jesus. The gospel itself, we ought to freely give to those around us, for we have freely received it. Mercy, even if people don't deserve it, we ought to freely give it to them because we have freely received it from God. All of the gifts and things that we have, we have received from God freely, freely. And so, church family, we are called to freely, freely give. Not, with, uh, not under compulsion, not withholding, 
but cheerfully, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that God loves a cheerful giver. So often we are happy to receive the blessing of God in our lives, but completely unwilling to live in a way that even slightly reflects the kind of loving kindness that he has showed us in Christ Jesus. We're happy to receive God's grace, to receive his mercy, to receive his blessings, and then keep them to ourselves rather than give to those around us. Going back to C.T. Studd, he has this quote that, uh, quote that he is, one of his more well-known quotes, where he says, as he is sacrificing everything, selling all of his possessions, giving away all of the inheritance that he had, millions and millions of dollars that were rightfully his, giving it all away and moving on to the mission field. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make to him. There is no sacrifice great enough that could ever compare to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. God in flesh died on the cross to save you from your sin, gave up everything. Are you not willing to give up even material possessions for the sake of his people, for the sake of the people whom he died to save and whom you have been called to serve and love in this way? This is a good piece of homework for us this week to be obedient to the calling that God has put on our lives as believers. We should set our minds on and dwell on the sacrifice that God has made for us and in turn ask ourselves, what ought we be willing to sacrifice for him? We don't sacrifice out of a hope, out of a desperate desire that the Lord would see our sacrifice and, and continue to make us righteous. That that we might hopefully stand before God one day and he'll say, man, you just really gave all that you had really well. You really served really well. You gave sacrificially and therefore I'm going to let you in. That is not the basis of our salvation. That is not the basis of our righteousness. As we sang before, Christ alone is the basis of our righteousness. All we have is Christ. That is our only hope if we are to be saved. And so we do not give sacrificially out of a desire to, to be declared righteous before God. But because he has made a way and sacrificed so much to declare us righteous, let us live in light of that. Let us live in a way of gratitude and of a desire to pour ourselves out for the sake of his people. I want to close with one more hymn. This was a hymn written in 1874 by a woman named Frances Havergale. It's called Take My Life, and I think this hymn sums up well what the Christian life ought to be, what our prayer ought to be before the Lord. She writes, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne.
Let this be our prayer today. Remembering what God has done for us in Christ Jesus by his sacrifice of everything for the sake of sinners. Let us be willing to live lives generously like the early church because of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.